0: Hello and welcome to q Quest, episode three hundred and one. I'm your host, Mike caps, aka Wheels, and with
1: me is Voice, meddling teen David McBurney, Family Master, cranky old man yelling at those kids to get off his lawn. Your matinage you fan, Michael Baker, Michael, Michael Baker. I feel
0: like I just walked into a Scooby-Doo episode.
2: Yeah, that was was kind of the thing I was going for the second that I realized that uh, I was playing with a group of meddling kids trying to stop a game more so Nice. Mm -hmm.
3: Of
0: course you're playing as teens in a JRPG. What else would it be?
2: You're not actually teens. You're in your early 20s. That didn't roll off the tongue
0: as well. (laughs) Of course not.
1: Okay, so what was the last RPG that you played that Ed, a majority non teen cast.
2: Uh, before this. Uh, uh, if we're talking about uh, RPGs that originate from Japan, probably FF7.
0: Damn, so I can't, th- I can't say Cthulhu Saves Christmas.
1: I guess that would count, yeah. Okay,
0: well, then Cthulhu <laughs> Saves Christmas. <laughs>
1: I just picked up Rise Riza 3*, where all of the characters are officially 21 or 22 years old now. Oh wow!
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Except for the ones who are figuratively immortal, or a few.
2: Thinking about like, uh, since I was thinking about like, oh, the last one that I played from Japan that was probably that was like that was probably the FF7 remake, and I was thinking about yeah, that cast is. The the tag-along kid in that cast is normal JRPG protagonist age. Which was weird to think about. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Uh, What have we been playing? What have we been
1: playing? Well, on Monday, I I had to uh, go downtown for an event and realized that coming back, I didn't actually have spare change and my wallet had a one man bill in it and the streetcar will not mm. change for something that large so i had to go buy something to break the bill so if you for could those who don't just,
2: know one man equals ten thousand
1: yeah it, it's easy honestly if you live over here long enough you just start saying one man instead of ten thousand because it's yeah it's it's much faster i mean it's a good unit um yeah um so i found um, i found cadence of hyrule for 15 bucks equivalent oh no nice. oh, Good way to break a dollar. Messing around with that, and then I just got Rise of Three like half an hour or an hour ago. So I haven't actually started that one up yet.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that did just come out.
1: Like literally today or tomorrow for the rest of the, for I think your continent.
2: Yeah, I think they actually did try to do simultaneous
1: release on that, which is kind of i nice. <laughs> uh, um, On a, a on Facebook, It keeps advertising a countdown until and countdown until is until Friday.
3: Basically.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah definitely we no longer lag behind so much on the atelier game releases I
0: uh-huh. wonder how much it has to do with uh, not doing voice acting anymore and yeah, that'll
2: help but I mean, there's also there's way more work to it than that yeah it's true <laughs> yeah.
1: I've, I've seen Atelier games with good localizations and bad localizations, and I haven't really seen one with exceptional English voice acting that some have tried. Um,
2: well, listen, we have left behind the point where someone just arbitrarily changes a character's last name to D just so that her name will be SDD. So. Uh, we're happened? we're living in a better time now. <laughs>
3: what <When laughs> was, was that? that? <laughs> I'm
2: trying to remember which one SDD is in. Let's
3: see,
2: uh, Rorona was her first appearance. But in Japan, apparently, she was SD Airhart, and for some reason, someone thought it would be really fucking funny if
1: they changed her name to
0: SDB. Wow, real fucking what? mature. <laughs>
1: Okay, you're making me very glad. Actually, no, never mind, I did play Tatori in English. I didn't play Verona or... The other yeah, we've,
2: we've left behind the period where they'll
1: do that just as a
2: uh, a gag for no one except the person who changed her name, so...
1: Yeah, it's kind of like uh, I had somebody asking me a question about Metal Saga earlier this week, and it reminded mm-hmm. me that, oh, yeah, they took the one character who was supposed to be a joke on the stereotypical Japanese um, thrower, um, con artist and changed his name into something that was anti, or anti-Arabic.
2: or anti Oh yeah, um, that, was a, that was a real unfortunate choice.
1: Yeah.
2: <sighs> okay, so let's talk about things that are less depressing. Uh, so you've been playing a bit of Cadence of Hyrule yet, or haven't had the chance? Oh, I just beat the first boss.
3: Mm.
2: It's got a lot of great music. A lot of great music to steal from the Zelda games. <laughs>
1: oh yeah, just trying to get used to the beat. Mm-hmm. So step to the beat.
2: If you recall, there's a there's some a good remix of the uh, Gerudo Desert music in that one.
3: Yep.
2: Sorry. Um, yeah, I know that one. Mm. But, yeah, I mean, that was that was a that was a cool thing to see happen. To see this relatively indie studio get uh, get the chance to work with such a
1: such an old franchise like that. Mm-hmm. Remember, everyone was amazed when it got announced. It was like, okay, yeah, they're I actually mean... letting a third party do something with one of their major IPs.
2: They've been gun shy about that for twenty years, and they had a good reason at the time.
1: <laughs> oh, oh! I've only seen videos of the <sighs> those games. Oh man! Uh, okay.
2: uh, so, uh, through the halls of time, the phrase uh, "if you hold down, if you hold down, I can do the duck walk," And that just sort of lives lives with you forever.
3: Uh,
2: C D I was not meant to play games.
3: Um, <laughs>
1: CDI was not meant to do anything it was supposed to do.
2: I mean, what it was supposed to do was basically uh, host, uh, play host a software that you would most likely describe as, like, essentially interactive encyclopedias. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just that it turns out that there was essentially zero market for that, and so they pivoted to games as the only thing they could theoretically sell on. hmm <laughs> Which explains a great deal about uh, the weird games that end up being released
3: on it. Ugh.
0: And uh, what cacophony have you been playing, Wheels? Uh, mostly Destiny. A lot of that has to do with the untimely passing of Lance Reddick, which means I've also. Right. Yeah, rest in peace. I've also been re watching some Fringe, started watching The Wire. He was a really cool actor, and uh, yeah, that one came out of nowhere and really, really sucks. Yeah, dude was only sixty. Yeah, definitely, definitely should have had him for a while. Yeah, Yeah, it's it's a real shame. Uh, So yeah, highly recommend people uh, watch or play anything any he's in. He's it's one of the special ones. He brought a lot to anything he was in. Yeah. Uh, Fringe, I think, was the first thing I really saw him in, and he like carries every scene he's in. So, mm. I recommend. Sure, that. that holds up pretty well. Yeah, no, I love that show. I think, it hold, I think it's better than the X Files, which people often compare it to.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, if you take off the rose-colored glasses, yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, almost certainly. The X Files were a lot of things, but consistent. No, it's not, necessarily- <laughs> not even on that page. No. Yeah, I mean, you can say the same thing about Next Generation for a lot of its run too. It's just it's mm-hmm. the decade that it yep. came from. Yeah, I mean,
2: you, you could get away with being
1: inconsistent a lot more when you didn't try to wrap all your plots together. Yeah. <laughs> in the in those bygone years before they before American TV learned how to actually manage a plot arc properly. <laughs>
2: We still kind of don't, it's just that now everything is uh, one horribly long, like, everything has to be a sludge of plot in order to make sure that it fills out the exact runtime that was ordered by the streaming service that paid for it.
1: Now, I've seen some better attempts in some of the cartoons my daughters are watching, but still, mm-hmm. um, still most of these series are... be. Um, all of them, but most of these series are being beaten out by Precure when, in terms of <laughs> actual upper plot management and planning. What I'd like to live. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, are you sure that Precure people have had literally two decades plus of experience doing this? Getting on, but, huh? Yeah. No, I mean, it, it is season 23. Series oh, 21, that season long. 23. Yes, it has.
0: Oh, Fire e- Miner start. has a question for us already in the chat.
2: Yeah, yeah, I've been waiting until we finish out before we okay. uh, finish our. Yeah, we will and also remember we'll, two we'll weeks get to that ago Fire Miner. No weeks ago We
1: had a question on. It's... It's not... Yeah, yeah. I think.
3: Okay, yeah, I
2: guess from what I can tell, Pretty Gear started in like 2004
3: ish?
1: Mm-hmm. earlier i think let's see
3: yeah i'm
2: seeing the first one is Futariwa, pretty cure and that's like february 2004 but, uh, in any case while that's getting sorted out uh, evidently
1: wheels is also playing remnant from the ashes for those yes who are yes so uh this past week okay, so it's only the twentieth season. Okay, I was a bit off.
0: off. Okay. This past this past week a not widely advertised switch port of Remnant from the Ashes came out, which for anyone that's unfamiliar, it's a game that came out I don't remember when, at some point. Twenty nineteen, I think. Yeah, on PS four and Xbox, It was like a mostly souls like ish. But it's got, like, some procedural world generation. Like, there's things where, you know, you can go into your friend's world and perhaps fight some bosses you've never seen before and things like that, or get to areas you've never seen before. Uh, So it's, honestly, from what I've heard, got a great deal of replayability to it in that manner. And also it includes some DLC, so there's, like, some cool survival mode in it and whatnot. But... Uh, outside of being a very good game, it's a very good port. You Noticed know, very little in the way of performance issues or anything else. It just seems really solid. And as uh, Dave and I were trying to look into this before the show, and as far as we can tell, it seems like it was ported by the original developers. Quite rare, even for the best Switch yeah. ports. So, yeah, it's. I'm not sure how this Switch port happened. Obviously, the original game came out a while ago. Uh, should be, I think the DLC, some of the DLC actually came out more recently, but. Um, seems like they sort of did what they did with Darksiders 3 yeah. on, they just sort of ported it along with the DLC. Yeah, uh, I mean, THQ Nordic seems to do lots of switch ports, and. This was Perfect World. Yeah. Uh, well, THQ Nordic owns Gunfire
2: yeah i can never tell who
0: who is like where in that chain of command. yeah who the fuck knows but anyway yeah it's it's another really good switch port and uh
2: always nice when
0: I companies really put their all into this it's waiting for smoke and joe to pop up in the chat and be like you can just play on your steam deck it'll have better frames I don't know. I might actually have to like build shaders yeah, unless you get actually more problems. <laughs> brother, I'd rather play it on the Switch any day of the week. Sorry. It's, nice to it's an actual portable system and not one that makes my a hands hurt. Break. Which I say, uh, even though I play Steam Deck all the time, mostly for Destiny. But whatever. Can I might pick up a deck if my bonus this year is big enough. we will see people like us it's a worthy investment it's definitely not it's not in uh it's not not for the general it's not for a general (laughs) it's not even remotely a switch replacement it's not even for the general public it is very much an enthusiast device they kind of knew that when they never actually put it in stores they just sort of said hey you can order from our website they know what they're doing (laughs) and they seem to be totally fine with how it's selling so Meh. I think they knew it. They have
2: realistic doing. expectations for the device to for you. Yeah. So respect for that, even if I have many other
0: issues with well. Yeah. I mean, clearly there's a market for that. And, you know, mm. I, I honestly like when people serve a smaller market. The world uh, would be better if yes. were more willing to serve smaller yeah, that's like whatever you may say about limited run games, that's why I like them a lot. Like, there's a, there's a market for physical games and, you know, you look at the fact that I can walk into a store and buy vinyl records, there's clearly going to continue to be a market for physical games, so I'm glad that someone yeah, is committed gotta, to serving that. Yeah, It's got to be good at measuring out how much you can
2: sell. Exactly. Let's see. To get the what we've been playing out of the way so we can start getting some questions, uh, i been playing Trails from Zero. Uh, as mentioned, I am now a bunch of med- meddling, mostly 20 somethings, except for the tag along child, uh, who are trying to. Uh, I'm not even sure if they fully realize it yet. They're currently in the process of trying He's to stop a Kang War. <laughs> so that's fun. Uh,
0: so, no, no, this cross is almost dead. I must not die. It's a good game. Uh, I've been
2: enjoying. Uh, I've been enjoying playing it while a friend, who I can't actually watch what they're doing because they're playing Cold Steel, occasionally asks me, hey, what the hell is going on in Trails from Zero, so I can have some idea. Because <laughs> so they had like watched me play Trails in the Sky. They didn't feel like playing that. They didn't feel like playing. Trails from Zero, but they had Cold Steel handy, so they were playing uh, Trails in Cold Steel. And uh, so it's just occasionally like, uh, who is this? What is this? Well, a third person who watched me play Trails in the Sky and thought it was pretty cool is trying to fill them in on shit like the fucking uh, spoilers for a background event that's uh, enumerated in Trails in the Sky the third. while explaining like, oh yeah, them talking about that city being wiped off the map is because it got turned into salt. Oh god. Yeah, it's a nightmare. Uh How biblical. Very, very 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 biblical. It's there's a great thing in the background of Trails in the Sky the Third when that happens because it's like the most uh, realistic response I have ever seen from a uh, from a religious body in a game by virtue of when they find an artifact that turn that just turns things into salt, there is an internal debate within the uh, church of the trails world about what this means theologically by virtue of the fact that the artifact is too powerful to have not come from God, but it's also so monstrously horrifying that they can't, countenance that it came from god so there's like an internal debate about where it came from <laughs> and why.
1: i think i remember you mentioning this once
2: yeah when i was finishing out trails in
1: the sky the third it's 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 one of those
2: things where it's like oh they really do intend to actually do world building here they're not just doing things I
0: don't know. Well, that's why people but, seem yeah. to love this series yeah
2: and we'll hit this fire minor question uh, since it's related to what I'm talking about at the exact moment. How do you feel about Trails' as chess messages? I think they're very funny, and I think it's very funny how the the jokes in the chess messages in the uh, crossbow games are routinely referencing the fact that the chess messages' days are numbered. <laughs> uh, there is a reference in either Trails in the Sky the Third or Trails from Zero Uh to how quiet all the chests in Arabonia are. And Arabonia is where Cold Steel takes place, and that's when they stopped doing those, because uh, the baffling programming decision that made them possible, it was no longer being made. <laughs> so,
0: so is that uh, is that something that's in the original Japanese? No. Or is that that's something the translator has added, right? Yeah, so basically,
1: okay. in the Edith, Japanese- I remember version. explaining this. What's really that? crazy. I oh, remember yeah, yeah. explaining this.
2: So basically what happened was that in the Japanese version, uh, the chests, when you try to examine them, they all say, like, this chest is empty or something similar to that. And it's all, always the same word, but it's never pointing to the same line of text in the game's code. Huh. 100% every time a unique, uh, like, oh, That gives I, me a headache. Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's tr- anyone who hears that and has any programming experience is just thinking, for the love of god, why? <laughs> <laughs> uh i have no idea i have absolutely no idea why they did that so someone when they were localizing trails in the sky first chapter noticed that and you know made some of them say different things most of them in Trails in the sky first chapter say a ha- like nothing t- super interesting uh it- it's not until second chapter that they start going nuts with like we're gonna do a bunch of silly things most of the chests in second chapter say something unique uh the, some of them repeat but you know like probably about 70 percent of them are saying something unique but some kind of joke uh and then with trails in the sky the third they fully committed to it and that's when they really start going insane with like here is a like 30 part narrative that can be constructed by uh reading all of the chests in the right order uh like just deliriously insane uses of time, uh, and so trails from zero and trails to Azure. Those are the last two games that are programmed that way. So it's the last times that we get uh, that we get talking chests that will make uh, jokes. The original fan translation that this uh, that this is essentially a slightly retouched version of. Uh, I believe actually had. Uh, people within the Trails fandom actually contributing uh, suggestions for what to put in treasure chests, along with hiring, uh, bringing on, not really hiring, it was a free fan translation, but bringing on one of the people who had localized several of the games uh, back at XSEED to write, like, deliriously insane shit like Trails in the Chest 2.
1: <laughs> so. Like, wasn't there like an uh, entire narrative saga that you could collect not in chronological order?
2: Yeah, ba- basically, uh you'll get like a snippet of a longer narrative and then a number out of number. And they'll like they'll just be freely long. You'll get like this is number fifteen out of forty five. Uh just You'd have to slowly construct them because they'll never be in the order you actually approach the chests. they'll always be in some bizarre anachronic order as you slowly piece them together uh, and that uh, that that's one of the things that trails in the chest is is that that is a uh, that is a particularly brutally insane example of that <laughs> but, yeah, so. <laughs> They, of course, they have never, uh, you know. But there's multiple references to the fact that Arabonian uh, and Calvardian chests don't talk, which is a joke on the fact that uh, there's, uh, you know, a joke on the fact that Kuro no Seki and uh, Trails of Cold Steel they couldn't do that anymore. Uh, but they'll they'll reference the the, the treasure chests in Liberl and Crossbell find it weird that the other chests don't talk. Uh, there's a lot of references to them being incensed that you stole from them, uh, especially in Crossbell, because you're technically playing as a group of uh, police officers. So they're like, you know, it's pretty unbecoming of you. Uh, there's there's a lot of fun, silly stuff in there that's just like, oh, that's, that's cute. And then, of course, I believe by either at the end of Trails from Zero or Trails to Azure, there's also some uh, stuff from the translation group. That's them just sort of explaining, yeah, you, know, you know, signing signing their initials and saying what the trail series means to them. So that's also very nice, especially because nice. one of the leads on it has passed away. So.
0: Oh yeah, that's right. Fuck. So, yeah.
2: But yeah, ha- having a lot of fun. With uh, trails from zero, uh, it's got it's got a fun party. It's got uh, it's it's fascinating to me how much uh, use that Falcon got out of the underlying technology of E6. Because uh, if I were to just off the top of my head guess how many things are essentially running on the underlying engine for E6, it's like E6, Oath and Origin, Trails in the Sky one, two, and three, both crossbow games. I think Na'ita Nukiseki is also uh, powered by that same technology. They, they, uh, East versus
0: Trails in the Sky seems to
2: be using a variant of that engine. Like they got a lot of use out of that uh, underlying technology before they moved on.
0: I thought the versus game was using whatever E7 is based on. I don't remember. I would have to look. It's been years since don't... I played it, but it played similarly to that game. But I could be wrong. It's been a while. Yeah,
2: I'd have to. I'd have to look at it again. Yeah. But yeah, it's just one of those things. They got a lot of use out of that. Uh, yeah. So that's uh, that's been a lot of fun. Great. Uh, the the localization has been. Uh, rock solidly like, you, you would not know you, you would never guess this was a fan translation if you didn't know its history uh, absolutely uh, you know professional quality which is very nice uh, but yeah so that's been fun uh also every time the there's like an in-game performance group and i'm just flummoxed every time that I see their name because their name is Arkham CL <laughs> which yeah I figured J. Gaijin Popper. would get that yeah, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a play on Arkham CL but every time I see that name I just sort of uh, <laughs> kind of did, do a double take on that
1: being that the Japanese group just actually has the article from French on the front yep. so there is effectively no difference in title here at what could yep. be considered legally non-actionable, <laughs>
2: <laughs> but yeah. So that's it's uh they they take up a lot of the plot of chapter two. So been kind of, uh, that's been kind of throwing me. Chapter two, aka chapter three, because the prologue is its own chapter. That's actually quite long. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, well, no one ever accused any Trails game of going anywhere fast, so. But nothing wrong with that. It's uh, it's it's using that time that it's taken, so I don't blame it. But yeah, I'm playing that. Uh, other than that, uh, I've played some stupid bullshit, as is my want. Uh, I. Uh, in preparation for the Resident Evil 4 remake, I was fucking around with. The dumbest version of uh the original RE2 that's still playable. Which is to say I was playing the N64 version of the original RE2. Okay. Which is an extremely impressive version on a technical level because it's, got, it's what's that?
1: Because it's playable.
2: It's uh yeah, because like it's it has all of the content that the PS1 version had. Both characters, uh, all of their FMV scenes, even if they are like crunched all the hell in order to make them fit on the cartridge. Uh, and a bunch of unique stuff that's only in that version. Like, no other version has. There's some EX files that are supposed to like better explain how Resident Evil 2 uh, fits in with Resident Evil 0 and Resident Evil Code Veronica, but foreshadows both of those games, one of which hadn't even released at the time the game came out. There's a randomizer mode that just randomizes the placement of certain items in the game, which is very uncommon at the time, Uh, basically unheard of in a like mainstream game at the time. Uh, There's, it's it's a really impressive. Oh yeah, and it has the one thing people always beg for with those old games: the option to turn off tank controls. Like it's very
1: very helpful.
2: Yeah, it's an extremely weird version of the game. And actually kind of really cool, but of course, you know, it was a late it was like a 2000 M64 game. Also ported by an extremely strange source, Angel Studios, which is now known as Rockstar San Diego, the developers of Red Dead Redemption 1 and 2. Um Back in the back in the day they had like a brief relationship with Capcom and were the original Red Dead Revolver was actually supposed to be a spiritual successor to Capcom's classic arcade game, Gun.Smoke. Which, uh... There's, there's your trivia for the day. Uh, it's <laughs> but, yeah, uh, but yeah. But yeah, the the N64 version of RE2 is just legit. It's an extremely impressive port. Uh, Angel Studios at the time was actually... Uh, pitching around the idea I think in the hope of getting funding from both a publisher uh, both whatever publisher would take it and Nintendo of uh, porting like big PlayStation games to the N64 and apparently uh, the the rumor says that one of the first things they tried pitching could not get uh, anyone to bite on was t- trying to port FF7 to the N64 which mm-hmm. would have been fascinating if they had attempted it <laughs>
1: I'm not sure how they could manage that.
2: I mean, they they seem very keen on demonstrating their capacity to compress data, so I'm sure they had some
1: sort of plan, but,
2: man, I I don't know
1: what that would look like. (laughs) Considering, wasn't, wasn't the fact that Final Fantasy VII was big enough to require multiple disks one of the reasons why Square didn't go with the N64 to begin with?
2: Yeah, they had a multitude of reasons as to why, but like the CD was yeah. the big was the thing that sealed the deal to the point the where the
1: Data Sony capacity it, of the cartridge, yeah,
2: yeah, and, and the expense of the cartridge itself, but yeah, yeah. Uh, there was a it, infamously the uh, ads that Sony put out when they were helping finance. Uh, FF 7s U.S. release. Uh, one of the things in the ad was, uh, "Someone please get the guys who make cartridge games a cigarette and a blindfold."
1: Which, uh, yeah, it's not good.
2: Yeah, it was one of those situations where it's like they they had really made their bones on like ca- calling out the existence of the continued existence of cartridge games. So it was. One of those things, it would have been very funny if it had happened, but we do not live in such a world. Um, But, yeah. Let's see. Fireminer says, anyone remember when games like Dragon Slayer came on later? LaserDiscs, imagine if we had that instead of the CDs. LaserDiscs are very strange because they're they're not suitable for traditional games in part because they are not digital. They're big CDs, but they're still entirely analog in terms of how they store data.
1: Isn't that? Uh, part, um, it's like wasn't there some physical issue with Dragon Slayer itself in the arcades?
2: Uh, there's there's a lot of potential issues. Eventually, the the disc, the constantly reading a disc is going to burn it out. Uh, relatively quickly, uh, but yeah, it, one of the things that's fascinating if you look it up is that there are, there are HD laser discs. They were uh, marketed in the mid nineties in Japan, uh, based off of the same uh, technology as the uh, mid nine early to mid nineties Japanese uh, high definition broadcast standard. Uh, high muse, uh, she used extremely complicated, uh, techniques with names like multiple sub Nyquist inc- encoding mm-hmm. to, hmm.
1: uh, Dude, that put out fast.
2: <laughs> multiple sub Nyquist encoding, multiple sub Nyquist encoding, multiple sub Nyquist encoding. There, um, yeah. but yeah, uh, but yeah, basically, uh, it. it it was analyzing similarities between frames, and like, uh, you know, there's frame blending involved. And like, it's basically a way to deliver analog data uh, in it's in an extremely strange resolution because of this. It's like 1035 interlaced format, uh, 1035 uh, lines in an interlaced uh, picture format that. Could depending upon how active the frame was, take up to four frames to fully composite an image. It's really strange if you know uh, if you know anything about how uh, analog television, even by analog television standards. But it, it, it was impressive that they got it to work. It was kind of a technological data. But there are there are a handful of high vision laser discs. Like by a handful, I mean like seven <laughs> that are HD movies released to the just exorbitantly rich in japan in the mid-90s so you could watch an hd home copy of like terminator 2 judgment day if you were sufficiently rich in japanese at the time uh and the part of the reason that that technology is a dead end as far as laser discs were concerned was that uh still not digital uh i believe the soundtracks were digital at that point but not the but the picture could not be uh for one reason or another that i am not well technically well versed enough to describe as i don't really understand it myself but basically uh part of the issue you run into is the laser discs have to spin up faster physically in order to uh in order for those HD laser discs to work. And so I forget what That's the issue exact... I was
1: remembering hearing about um, with yeah. the arcade is like the motors. I mean, they actually had to have a laser disc player in the cabinet and they kept yeah. breaking down from use. From over- yeah, because laser
2: discs cra- run at a crazy RPM compared to uh, CDs. Like a CD spins up and then it spins up again when it needs to load. Is why, uh, if you examine what a console is usually doing, you'll hear, or even just listen to it, you'll hear CDs spin
1: up when you
2: enter a new area. It has to load new data.
1: Yeah. Uh, why well, the occasional CD based PlayStation 2 game just spins like c- crazy. Man. Yeah,
3: I see. see. Uh, okay.
2: okay, so d- different kinds of laser discs spin at different rates. Uh, the uh, because like there were ways to store more data based on uh the velocity of the disk, there's constant linear velocity versus constant angular velocity, and they had different advantages and disadvantages. You could fit more data on a constant linear velocity one, but you could seek to, down to the individual frame on a constant angular velocity disk. It's it's crazy, it's weird. Um, so the uh the a high vision disc uh in CAV format uh we're spinning at eighteen hundred revolutions per minute. Huh. And I, I need you to understand that a laser disc is the size of a pizza.
3: <laughs>
2: so that's a lot of discs to spin at an ungodly speed. Um
1: what what size effect. pizza?
2: Uh, probably about a medium-sized pizza. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, bigger than I expected. Yeah, see, laserdisc diameter is yeah. They they have a 12-inch diameter, like they're a foot around.
1: I Um, can tell why these things didn't last that long.
2: They were they were most popular in Japan, where there was a uh, target audience of uh, the kind of nerd that would care and uh, the, the constant linear velocity uh, high vision disks could spin uh, like the the thing about constant linear velocities uh, different parts of the disk spin uh, when it's reading different parts of the disk it's spinning at different speeds uh, and in those truly terrifying situations a high vision disk is uh, that was constantly near velocity formatted, could run as high as 2470 revolutions per minute. Uh, absolutely terrifying. Um, like, just what the fuck. Uh, that is a 12-inch a diameter disc that is spinning dozens of times a second. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that, that's one of the reasons, like, things like thi- physical forces, uh, like, like fundamental physical forces are part of why we kind of had to move away from analog to digital. It's because of, you run into things like that where it's like you're scaling up, you're scaling up. Oh, this is a problem. This has suddenly become a very big problem. Um,
1: it's like some old, weird version of the old wiring, uh, wiring problem.
2: Yeah. Uh, it's kind of the same thing for why... Uh, for a very long time magnetic tape like vhs tapes was was not considered viable for uh, for home recording or like storing a reasonable uh, storing on a reasonable amount of tape uh because of the issue of how fast that uh the recording medium had to be moving in order to actually record onto the tape and thus how fast the tape would theoretically be moving and eventually, the, the problem was solved by uh, the instead of the tape moving really fast, it was the thing doing the recording that's moving really fast. Uh, and you could limit the amount of tape needed by, instead of doing the more obvious horizontal scanning, uh, if the uh, recording medium, it uh, gave the tape, is at an angle to the recording device, uh, the, the term for this was helical scan, you would basically have a situation where uh, instead of recording horizontally across, it was recording uh, diagonally at a slant against the tape, which allowed it to much more efficiently use the space on the tape, which allowed uh, VHS and Betamax to become reasonable home recording format. This has been your uh, too long lecture about uh, analog recording formats. Yeah, Uh, legitimately fascinating. Uh, if you want to go looking into it, uh, if you if you dig deep, too deep into that rabbit hole, you get into uh, purely mechanical television, which runs into some of the same problems as disks, Where in order to create a, uh, a purely mechanical, rather than electromechanical, you want to make a purely mechanical television, you end up with something that has to. Uh, be the size of a house in order to display an image of any meaningful size. And it uh, has to be spinning at a speed of uh, some sort of natural disaster happens if it ever escapes where it's been the thing that it's spinning on. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, legitimately, uh, the, the history of Television and analog video and TV broadcast standards is fucking fascinating. Uh, highly recommend it if you ever feel like falling uh, down a rabbit hole to go with that shit up. But this is pretty far afield from games. So the closest I could relate it to being uh, a combination of Dragon Slayer and the difference between uh, NTSC and uh, PAL uh, video broadcast standards that affected the frame rate the games had to work And the. Uh, Fascinating fact that different parts of uh, Japan's electrical grid, at the very least, used to run at different speeds. Mm-hmm. At uh, 50 hertz and 60 hertz, uh, both imported at various times in different parts of the country.
1: Yeah, hooray for poorly thought out non-standardization.
3: Yep, yeah, they,
2: they made it work. I made it work eventually i can i do not envy the job of the engineers that had to make it work yeah uh so since i don't want to forget this time we're going to pop into the comments because shaman left a question last week that we did not end up getting around to
3: Okay,
2: not that episode. Okay, there we go. Uh, it's, it's great to try to remember what uh, thing from the episode he's referencing. So Shaman says, since the random burst of gold coins was mentioned on this episode 298, there was a promotion for subscribers to a Switch Online expansion pack that doubled any gold coins earned between... Oh, that's what happened. Uh, he was, I think he was explaining why Wheels had more coins than he realized. There was a promotion for subscribers to the Switch Online Expansion Pack that doubled any gold coins earned between November 1st and January 31st and paid out on February 15th.
0: Oh, okay, yeah, that explains everything. Thank you. Thank you, Shaman. Thanks, Shaman. Also,
2: in honor of episode 300 and also a recent run and I had in the Crossbow Beams, who how come do I have to kick into a pit the naming of Wazy Hemisphere? That the most insane character names on such maverick. It's getting up there. That I don't know how that was meant to be pronounced. That might not. I might be mispronouncing that, but that is how it's written. W a z y space hemisphere.
1: Okay. I
2: am seeing Waji as the kana there. Yeah, that's that's definitely among the crazier names that these characters have had. Jeez. Trails from Zero, right? Yeah, Trails from Zero.
1: Character list. Um, okay, you know, let's switch this to Japanese. Luckily they have yeah. the characters here.
2: The, I'm saying Katakana with wa and G, so...
1: Let's see. Characters. Oh, come on. Uh, game, let's see, game systems, locations, it, Japanese wiki is much, much larger than- the, Yeah, that doesn't surprise me in the slightest. <laughs> uh, there we go. Okay, so, let see, Lloyd Bannings, Elaine McPhail, Theo Plateau, Andy Allrand, Noel Seeker, waji um, Yeah, it's probably supposed to be. I, I think the translation intended for it to be pronounced Wazi Hemisphere. I guess. Wazi. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, Say what? What kind of? What's the like the defining characteristics of this character?
2: Uh, he's he's relatively cool and collective. He's the the calm uh, member of the local two bit gangs.
1: Um, okay. How about physical appearance?
2: Uh, he's got he's he's kind of a slender, green-haired
1: dude, as I recall. Okay, because my first thought was would be if they attempted to um, put some random like um, Indian or Middle Eastern name in, like Wazir. He hmm. Yeah, he's he definitely doesn't look like that. with he's not designed with that
2: uh, look to him,
1: but. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then no ideas. Yeah, Waji. Yeah, that one's the... Yeah. It's Wazy, yeah. whereas I mean the way they wrote it in in Romaji it looks a lot like Wazy.
2: Yeah. Yeah, W A Z Y is how they uh ended up putting it in the localization. I think there's probably at least some art book that probably spelled it that way.
1: But well, probably that does look like like a kind of spelling that would You'd get from somebody. It would propagate it. inside of
2: an some inside of some sort of
1: Japanese art book. Yeah.
2: But yeah, uh, definitely like by leaps and bounds one of the weirder names in this game. Which uh, like you you saw the fucking protagonist names. Most of them have pretty normal ass names. In this one. Uh. Yeah, so somehow uh, in, beneath, in between all those, you get, uh, you get Wazi Hemisphere. But let's see. Uh, oh, and Fireminer asks how uh, your teacher from FF8's uh, name is even spelled in Japanese. I've never actually looked. Kiss the strip? Yeah. I've heard every attempt at trying to determine a pronunciation for that. I've never seen a I've definitive never of- proof. We're
1: going to play it in Japanese.
2: Yeah, I'm trying to find like a katakana that is <laughs> used. I'm sure it showed up somewhere. Uh...
3: Okay. Um. Okay. Character list.
1: Uh, okay. And okay. Switch to Japanese again. Where So, Alfie. It was just Kistis. Okay. Kistis. Fair enough. Okay.
2: Yeah, one of those names, that I definitely heard about five different pronunciations of mm-hmm. over the years.
1: And it's part of the issue with choosing good romanization is like you can't always assume that the spelling that you use is going to be readable. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, oh, like I'm remembering. Um, were you ever in Boy Scouts? Yeah. And did you do Order of the Arrow?
3: Yeah, yeah.
1: It was like every single Order of the Arrow lodge has a different um, Native American name, and the joke mm-hmm. was that the ones that the shortest ones were always the hardest to pronounce because you had were <laughs> references to figure it out. So like, yeah, um, the Oklahoma City Lodge was Manu Mm m-a-n-u and people kept saying mainu manu manu mona whatever whereas the south south arkansas lodge nobody ever mispronounced that one it was abuik pagun (laughs) a-b-o-o-i-k-p-a-a-g-u-n
2: yeah that one's pretty unambiguous
1: yeah it's just like the shorter and simpler it looks in spelling, the more it gets messed up in English because English has no sense of proper phonetics.
2: <laughs> we've 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 adopted we've adopted many words from many places. And we've gotten lost along the way.
1: Not even that. We took like a, an internal word structure from Old English and attempted to apply French endings to it, and somehow got them both mixed up.
2: Well, shopping for some okay? An old man passed away. He floated up towards heaven, heaven but got lost along the way. Sorry, I'm just thinking about a sentence joke now. Uh, the love mad grandpa. Okay. Yeah. Did uh, you wear
0: an onion on your belt, as was the style at the time?
2: I floated up towards heaven, but I got
1: lost along the way. Hmm. Um, what you get for huffing the helium. Oh, God.
2: Uh... But yeah, okay, so to, to hit some stuff that's found its way into the chat. Uh, did you guys see the RE4 remake trailers in the style of Ghibli's Masterpiece Theater, Heidi Girl of the Alps? I'm not, I'm not sure if they're specific to Heidi Girl of the
1: Alps, because I haven't actually seen that. But um, Yeah, I did
2: see the Masterpiece Theater that's, that's,
1: style. Somebody posted, Smoke and Joe posted it in...
2: Yeah in the, yes, in and, the and yes,
1: that is that is very much Heidi style.
2: Okay, very specifically Heidi. But yeah. I mean I, I did see that. Style,
1: I, mean, I mean it's a well enough anime that like there are ad campaigns for things like literally like sliced bread in Japan that are very obviously based on that style without actually being the same thing.
2: Yeah, it's one of those like <laughs> stock parodies that you see in Japanese stuff. Yep.
1: <laughs> It's just it's one of those series that is so classic by this point that you can just imitate it and everyone knows what it's supposed to be.
2: Even if they haven't seen it, they at least know what it is.
1: <laughs> it's like all the random fantasy parody series that intentionally make silly versions of the Dragon Quest logo <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. um, qu- um, different enough that you, they can get away with it but you look at it and you realize yeah that's, you know it exactly you know exactly I know what exactly
2: says. what you're evoking with this style. <laughs> Yeah, it's one of those things like uh, they, they did something, they did a similar, uh, cute thing with uh, Village when that came out.
1: Oh, yeah. And let me tell you, if you are at all familiar with Japanese children's morning programming, especially the puppet shows, <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's a beautiful I could thing. Not stop beautiful. Laughing
1: for 10 minutes after watching those the first time. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, um, there, there's this one six educational show called pythagoras switch mm-hmm. it always ends with a uh, this funny little um like rube goldberg device kind of situation
3: mm-hmm.
1: and at the end the little flag goes up and it plays the theme song so mm-hmm. on the, the village on the resident evil village puppet show things they had a um, a cart no, a puppet abattoir mm-hmm. um that the characters act- accidentally fall through and once all of the red ribbon fake blood is over the little flag goes up and you hear and I'm like oh dear god. oh
2: god <laughs> they went for it
1: yes um, I remember posting that series to the
2: yeah yeah because you were really over the moon when that was happening because it was extremely funny so,
1: I, I would not play the game to save my life but the puppet shows where it was just like Funniest things ever. Puppet uh-huh. Show
2: was a hundred percent worth it.
1: Yes. Uh, I mean the fact that yeah. they took an incredibly viscerally gory horror game and turned it mm. into the Muppets, basically. Or Sesame Street.
3: <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: yeah. yeah, that seems to be that seems to be something that they're turning into
1: a bit of a tradition with the
2: RE releases, so I'm kind of curious what they'll end up doing for the next one. <laughs>
1: I, I like that their, their actual justification for the resident for the village puppet show was, as stated at the start of each of those videos, was yeah we took a poll and people kept telling us that the game was too scary. <laughs> so here we are. We're going to try and convince you that it's actually okay.
2: I can't wait for that RE4 remake. I'm all into that. I'm all in on that. Yeah. Uh see but yeah been uh and been, been having a been fun watching the uh response to that game trickle out and being like well i guess i guess i don't get to put it off i need to play it immediately <laughs> uh, I,
3: think,
1: I think the closest i ever came to actually playing resident evil 4 was when i got it in a lucky bag about mm-hmm. 10 years ago at christmas mm-hmm. and i sold it back to the used store for more than the value of the lucky bag
2: made a profit resident evil always yeah. resident evil 4 always you're earning a cheap
1: <laughs> i mean that's the one where i sold everything back and i ended up keeping dragon's dogma for a cost of negative 500 yen good work uh,
2: i would take five bucks and a copy of dragon's
1: dogma <laughs> I even reviewed it and referenced this in the beginning of the review.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, well, like, you know, I I think the original version of Resident Evil 4 is the most well-constructed game I've ever played. And I don't know that I think that this can live up to that, but... If it's at least a unique playthrough, which it sounds like they've made enough changes that it at least feels distinct from its original counterpart, then that's good enough.
0: <laughs> yeah, it doesn't have to surpass it, it just has to be It just has to justify good. that it's different. Right. <laughs> I'm different. Yeah, that's what immediately I enjoyed about the RE2 remake. It's like, is this better? I don't know yet, but it's different, and I appreciate that. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Even though kind of I the, didn't end up sticking with it yet, because I it was too violent for me at the time. Just put that put
2: that sucker on the switch too, yes. and I'll uh, play it again.
0: Yeah, but I withstood RE7, so I think it's, it's time for. I
2: think, yeah, I would, I would say that uh, RE2 remake is less mortifyingly violent. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> I uh I remember streaming uh, RE7 in VR and after seeing one of the cutscenes every time i died i would just look away so that the stream audience whatever whoever saw it would now have to see a man getting his uh, head chopped in half with a shovel jesus Let's see how many remakes even surpass the original nes contra technically i'm not even sure how to call that a remake it is definitely built uh, but in terms of games, that's like this is part of the reason I usually argue that remakes should be different because replacing the original is usually not a terribly interesting uh, or even valuable goal.
1: Unless uh, the original is on a hardware that's old enough that it is not actually possible to play it anymore.
2: Yeah, but at that point, I'd be fine with just emulating it. Like if they just sold me an
1: emulated version, I'd be fine with that. Um, like
2: okay,
1: say the, um, *Romancing Saga* and the two sagas on. Yes. Yeah, those experience. are those are
2: unequ- Yeah, unequivocally better than the originals.
1: Uh, I mean, in *Romancing Saga*, the entire point was to actually give the game that he wanted, that, that Kazu wanted to give, and not the one that he had been forced to put out at that time. Yeah. Um, and then just um, the DS versions. There is, I mean, just just on graphics alone. There's no comparison. Uh, everything else is just gravy. It's much, much better.
2: Yeah, in general, like I, like I've ranted about it before, but my philosophy is that a remake should be uh, different enough that whether it's better or worse is often kind of immaterial uh, compared to that. It's just a completely new experience. Uh, but you know, there are some of those where it's like. It's completely new material, and the new material is better. So, like, uh, I think both versions of speaking Resident Evil, Resident Evil One, both versions are worth playing. But I would unequivocally say that the remake of Resident Evil One is a better game. Than Resident
0: Evil 1. For sure. Uh,
2: speaking of uh, the DS port of Resident Evil One, which was the last uh, version that used the PS One version as a base, is a fascinating port. Uh, <laughs> for, for those who did not play Resident Evil: Deadly silenced yes, they decided uh, to get fun with that name. Uh, Deadly Silence uh, introduced some really weird niceties from uh, the later games. It had the the 180 degree quick turnaround that was introduced with Resident Evil Three. And most bizarrely, uh, it made it so that the knife was no longer something you had to carry around. It was something that you just could pull out any time that you uh, hit the L button, like Resident Evil 4.
1: It was a default equipment.
2: Yeah, it was just always there and no longer took up inventory space, so it was no longer useless. Uh, that, That version is fascinating because it has the original version of Resident Evil with just those like minor niceties, and then it has a completely remixed version of Resident Evil 1, which moves some of the puzzles around, changes some of them, moves some of the move, uh, rooms around, and adds in like, touch-screen puzzles, and if you're particularly weird and unlucky, uh, when you open a door, you might get put into a first-person knife-stabbing minigame. It's a really weird version. Um, but It's really cool, actually. It's a really neat game. Uh, honestly, like probably the easiest version of the PS1 version of RE1 to play.
0: Yep. Kind of um, bummed I sold my copy of that. Yep, still got that hanging around. Uh, uh, Fireminer asked, oh, wheels, will you play CS2 when it comes out? No. I <laughs> do not care for realistic shooters. I like sci-fi shooters. Occasionally somewhat realistic with if there's like a twist to it like the division i would play but yeah cs2 csgo is no it bores me to tears not a fan of csgo no don't care yeah that's fair no, now I, if, I it never... was, if it was counter-strike but hey you can it's now with lasers now we're talking
2: i'm surprised that never happened feel like there was a point after halo and before call of duty took off that you probably that call of, counter counter strike with lasers probably should have happened but didn't probably uh but yeah i, I did not play much counter strike uh i did not have a pc with a meaningful internet connection when it was first popular and i did not play uh csgo when that came out and then eventually that turned into basically a weird casino <laughs> so not not for me uh, yeah uh, can, uh my my brain's just descending into resident evil hell right now so i should probably start pulling out questions um Japanese version of arcade Counter-Strike has some sci-fi elements in it. Yeah, I think that's is that built off of the Half-Life Two Survivor Japanese arcade version of Half-Life Two, or was it the other way around? Uh, those are those are weird-ass games. Uh, let's see. Oh yeah, we all see. I think we should play Redfall when that comes out. I think we could have a good time with that.
0: Yeah, definitely. Cool. It'll be, on, it'll be on Game Pass anyway, right?
2: Yeah, it'll be on Game
0: Pass. Yeah, perfect. The uh, the lead on that
2: was just doing some interview rounds. Where it was uh, generally doing a good job of being on uh, on a good on a positive message. He was talking about how like people when when they brought up uh, in the interview people complaining about the game being forcibly always online even in single player. It was like. Yeah, no, uh, that that makes it, it makes sense that people are upset, and we're you know, can't make promises, but we're looking into trying to disable that. Oh, damn! So, yeah, they they're like he was basically saying we probably can't do it pre-launch, but post-launch they're going to be trying to make it so that you can play the single-player campaign without being connected to the internet, mm. which is nice. Uh, but yeah, um, let's pull out some some questions. You got questions and I've got
3: ramblings.
2: Okay. Uh Grandpa. Okay. Uh, oh hey, this is a question aimed right at me. Anyone here remember Nanobreaker? I always thought that despite its gameplay and graphics being pretty good, it was made on the same engine as of Innocence, so it's fine in my book. really likes the jazz to be interesting, so I want to ask, how important is it to a hack-and-slash game that the developers make the characters setting, etc., as cool as possible? feels like a criticism to many beat-em-up and hack-and-slashes that they lack like these things to make up for the repetitiveness of the gameplay. Uh, I don't think it needs to be cool, but it needs to stand out. Uh, because very much the design of Mana Breaker uh, is built to be cool, certainly. Uh, but uh, And I actually enjoy the game fairly well, but it definitely didn't stick out on the shelf. Uh, uh, God, I'm remembering that they, they really tried to make the protagonist of Nanobreaker seem like they they really wanted him to be uh, a cool character and so God, what is his full name because i'm just remembering his nickname and his nickname
0: is absurd I'm trying to remember what game Nanobreaker even is Because that name is definitely ingrained in my mind i just can't put like can't put a picture to the name uh you're
2: you're a cyborg uh you're a cyborg white-haired pretty anime man who is stabbing things because of evil trying to destroy evil nanobots basically. Yeah, uh, I don't
0: think I played
2: that. Yeah, it got some press coverage because as FireMiner mentioned, it was made in the Lament of Innocence Engine. It is a game produced by Koji Gadashi, who you may remember as the Castlevania Man for a decade and change. Uh, also known as the guy who was the principal behind Bloodstained as well, but uh, that was that was one of his pet projects. Uh, I've mentioned it before, but I brought a copy of Nanobreaker for him to sign when he was in the U.S. promoting uh, Bloodstained at PAX, and he was got really, really fucking excited. <laughs> like he was, he was so happy to see that. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, I remember his translator remarking that him shouting nanobreaker you are a good gamer was the most english that he had spoken of his own volition in the past like in the entire time that he had been in america (laughs) wow (laughs) he very much wanted to bring that across but uh uh yes nanobreaker's protagonist is named jake warren but he has the truly beautifully absurd nickname of the genocide hero okay (laughs) But yeah um, but yeah' it, it's, it's very much uh, it's cool looking, but it doesn't stick out from other things that were trying to be cool looking in the mid, in the mid-ops, and that was kind of the thing that really kept it from like it doesn't it's not just being cool looking, it's about being unique and sticking out and just generally uh, making that uh, that aesthetic work for you for the length of an entire game. And that's, that's a lot of work, especially when you're dealing with something like Lament of Innocence or uh, Nano Breaker that was clearly made on a relatively small budget compared to some of Konami's other heavy hitters. Okay. Um, usual criticism pointed at Japanese RPGs and even some Western RPGs is that they don't give you the freedom to roleplay. What do you think about the opposite opinion? The position of an observer that many Japanese RPGs put you and allows gamers to appreciate the character's setting, et cetera, more. They're just very different philosophies. I think that uh, mm-hmm. because the for, for a long time on consoles, the Japanese RPG paradigm uh, of, like, I wouldn't, like, I guess, you know, of a story that forces, that has you doing a specific set of things in a specific order was more popular. They became this very, like, loud contingent that said that it didn't really count. And it's just like, no, they're just very different uh... They're they're different ways of interacting, but both valid. I
1: mean, you get two different versions of anything and you'll have at least a few people who are very loudly against whatever it was.
2: Yeah, especially, especially whichever one seems to be less dominant in the market.
3: But
2: yeah the 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 thing i would say is that uh you know you can get some really interesting emergent stories that come from a character that is largely defined by the player and has their choices defined by the player but in doing so you end up with when the game does eventually have to put up those walls and say okay you can do a lot of things but you can't do that the uh it it feels much worse uh, for what uh, the the what you're doing in a freeform game when that happens. Uh, if that was your intended playstyle, then uh, in a game where your role is very strictly defined, it's like, well, I don't have a huge say in what this character is doing, so it it lands on the individual writing of the story to determine whether. The character and story worked and that gives the developers a lot more control so that can be uh it it can be very good too
1: there's also just the basic limitations of what you can do
2: Mm -hmm. it's uh it's very hard to explore the interiority of uh, a blank slate character and have the game react to their interiority in any meaningful fashion so like, when you produce, to, to take a, a very uh, known example, you can't produce a character like, uh, say, Cloud in a, a game with a largely uh, open uh, setting and character because uh, the internal contradictions of the character are just something that you, the player, has to square away. It's not something that the story can meaningfully deal with. sorry i didn't mean to cut you off Gerson.
1: no worries but yeah a lot of the people who are most against or most what was the word right here loudest about it are the ones mm-hmm. who think they really should be more like a tabletop experience except average console is not uh, capable of handling level of everything yeah it's um, it's it's
2: just not possible to make to to make a game in advance that's as, reactive as just working with other players.
1: Whereas at the same time, your human game master is not capable of handling the math necessary to do some of the really fun things that JRPGs can do. Mm.
2: <sighs> you just, you know, as long as the, the developer is conscious of what the strengths of their format
1: are, there's a lot of things you can do with both of them. Just a lot of people complain because they're not conscious of the limitations.
2: Yep and or just are irritated that the decisions aren't being made as often in favor of the kind of games they want, which I understand that can be frustrating, but like judge games for what they are, not what you want them to be. Um, um, to illustrate the above point, another question. Why don't a lot of RPGs uh, appreciate the beauty of obscuring details to the players. If you're dedicated to role playing, you're supposed to not know everything, right? This is just the way um, of lo- the way things are in life. Uh, that's a perfect. Final Fantasy
1: VIII proved um, that does not work very well because you have to be reliant on the co- um, reading comprehension levels of the average player.
2: There's some other things with that, like it, that, that. That definitely shows an example of like. Uh, and you, you see that with not just 8 but a bunch of the Final Fantasies but there's also just the fact
1: that 8's it, the one that really sticks out though because there were a lot of random clues that you could find to help explain the backstory mm. but they didn't always make a lot of sense especially since the localizers weren't the best about it either um, mm. I could see why people who did not bother to read too closely had a lot of trouble figuring out or just thought that half the plot points came out of the out of the blue Mm -hmm. Some of them did come out of the blue, but not necessarily as extreme as people thought Mm -hmm.
2: The the way I would look at it is that uh, You also just see the the general taste of the audience. There's there's a weird Disconnect and you see this uh, in not just narrative design, but world design that Most players fancy themselves as more observant than they are they yeah. like you, you saw this when most recently this dust step happened with the Resident Evil 4 remake demo where someone was complaining that all the all the breakable objects tend to have like spatterings of yellow like tape or paint or something on them to mm-hmm. make it so that they immediately stick out in the background as like this is a breakable object that you can uh, break open or jump through, that sort of thing. And like it's like, why do they think we're stupid? And the answer is that playtests repeatedly prove that we are Um, (laughs)
1: yeah it's the same reason why you have the nice big arrows on the maps nowadays
3: Mm -hmm.
2: and it's one of those things like there's there's this constant push-pull between the game needs the game most every game you've ever played wants you to finish it but if you the player think that the game is helping you you get most of the player base gets angry at it. Mm -hmm. And this is a mindset that goes from top to bottom, because I recently was reading an interview with the FF16 producer where he was talking about how he didn't want difficulty levels in the game because when a game offers to switch to uh, easy, it quote-unquote hurts his gamer pride. So this this is a brain rot that extends far and wide, and I just it's one of those things like, I think that honestly it would help if just everyone involved admitted that we're just not as good at observing things
1: as we think we are.
2: <laughs> like it's true.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I mean, we're, uh, the three of us are probably better than most. And I know we miss stuff all the time. Oh
2: yeah. Uh, routinely. But we, all, but uh, we also
1: have like between two and four decades of actual experience per person. Yeah. playing these games. Um, yeah, I know I've tagged along just watching somebody else play and I was just pointing something out and they are like, how did you know that was there? I'm like, it's obvious.
2: Play too many of these damn things. Yeah. Uh,
1: yeah. There's,
2: it's like,
1: it's like when, when you get to the point where you can't actually count how many RPGs you've played on consoles. Um, except that you know it's a lot. Uh, Gee, you, know, you, just, uh, yeah, you just know how to do these things. Mm-hmm. Especially if you're like me and you keep playing games that don't necessarily have walkthroughs.
2: <laughs> oh, good times!
1: Languages that, and languages that are not technically your own.
2: Um. Okay, we're gonna hit uh, some questions that has been leaving in the chat. Uh, will the whole AI write game scripts be anything more than a supplemental tool? Not if anyone wants to not completely obliterate uh, any chance of their writing being considered good, uh, yeah. or is it being blown up as an investment scam like Metaverse? Yes, uh, there's more use, there's more legitimate use cases for uh, algorithms in as, as part of your tool chain mm-hmm. than like NFTs or Metaverse, which just are just functionally completely useless from top to bottom but anyone who is trying to tell you that like oh you can just algorithmically generate a uh, story or a piece of art and it's just like if you're no, no you're, you're, you're like, you, like you can you can you won't make anything good
1: yeah <laughs> i mean if it's stuck to just basic like correctional stuff then I, I yeah okay um i think the only legitimately good use of ai art Tools I've seen so far was when I think um, Colbert made a, a series of fake portraits for the new Speaker of the House. Mm-hmm. There's um, a...
2: But, you know,
1: yeah, the, the best... Um, yep. Yeah. Okay. I was going to say, um, and but the best use I could think of for text AI generation would be like in a game like, I mean, like Elder Scrolls, where you have so many NPCs and Eventually, you want to actually improve the game to the point where you can have semi-dynamic dialogue, and if you come up with a good um, library of material just in the game, you can have your NPCs react to things better.
3: Yeah,
2: and you would strictly do that for NPCs that were yeah. of secondary importance, where it's like you would handcraft all the dialogue that mattered. Yeah.
1: Um, so yeah. So I mean. That's what I mean, it's just reactionary stuff from basic npcs that would work really well and that's the kind of thing that i can't have much attention to detail on when making the game mm-hmm. but it stands out to the player when they hear the same thing from five different npcs the exact same lines
3: mm-hmm.
2: yeah that would or, that uh, would be
1: kind of your best case scenario on that. or if all of your this treasure box is empty Dialog tags go to completely different locations, so you just want to come up with something random.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Basically the scut work.
2: Yeah, the the kind of stuff that eventually you you reach a point where it's like, we have to stop making these because it's not worth our time. Like, well, it's definitely worth an algorithm's time because its time is worthless. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah. Uh, that, that that's kind of your your best case scenario for AI as part of the tool chain. It's the stuff that uh, just filling out little details, and the the human work involved at that point is just making sure that it didn't do anything horrible. But uh, yeah, I, I think that's kind of your your uh, end point with that. Uh, but beyond that, I, I don't see. And uh, anyone that tries to bring it further up the chain into like plot outlines or actual main character dialogue is going to find that the work it produces is just completely unusable.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, let's see, uh, as as a response, I think to one of our prior statements, uh, Fireman says, "What you haven't tried breaking every wall in Castlevania and find food and weapons." The thing is that, uh, like, as, as one of the things that. Really illustrates how much there's like unspoken rules that people who play a lot of games start to notice. Is that eventually, after playing enough Castlevania games, when I was going through all of them, I found that the times that I did decide to attack a wall, I was usually had about seventy percent success rate of actually finding something because they had a an unspoken set of rules around where they tended to put them. So it's one of those things like the, you just you learn those over time there's nothing in the game that communicates them it's just enough experiences of it happening and that's uh that's kind of what they're trying to the, the feeling that they're always in pursuit of, of like oh you figured that out what a what a clever clock you are and then like you think about it and it's like oh no they they super wanted me to find that and that's why there's a consistent set of unwritten rules about how they're placed uh, uh about games that don't want you to finish, SNK fighting games that, when you break the block, to change your life thing. Well, someone had someone was supposed to finish that. Like the actual gameplay of Curiosity, what's inside the cube, was about as complex uh, as a Minecraft-based slot machine. Uh, but you know, it was it was it was more just that the reinforcement mechanic for that was to get you to keep trying to break the thing. Uh, is a a little different. Um, But as for SNK fighting games, those kind of want you to win too. Uh, They just wanted to make sure that you had spent enough money by the time you finished. Uh, If you try to go through the single-player campaign of old arcade fighting games, they'll often start lowering the difficulty as you put in, as you like, lose credits and continue to put in quarters uh this is a late example but uh worth noting the final boss of street fighter III, Third strike gill is infamously unreasonable uh in the same vein the snk bosses tend to be but uh if you have had to continue uh he will start taunting And that exists as just a way for you to be able to be on him for a while, because his taunt takes forever to actually finish. And so that is a... uh, He he will not do that unless the game has lowered the difficulty at least once. It's one of those things like, even the arcade games that are designed to steal money from you, they still want you to win as long as you're still willing to pay. Uh, Let's see... What I heard from people in the industry is that AI will be more likely used to write throwaway lines. Yeah, sounds like you're basically in the same uh, place. Uh, Takeshi's Challenge. Takeshi's Challenge is a
1: weird situation. <laughs> it's Takeshi's Challenge?
2: Uh, be Takeshi's Challenge, Takeshi no Trosanjo. The uh, Famicom game that was uh, celebrity endorsed by Takeshi T- uh, Kitano and was just designed to be extremely unpleasant to actually try to clear because it required you to do things like sing into the famicom controller for an hour <laughs>
3: okay
2: it's uh, uh yeah the, the thing about uh you, you can definitely find games that do not that do not want you to win but the the answer is that the vast majority of games even the ones that are labeled as super hard like dark souls they want you to win okay. they just don't want you to think that they helped you Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah uh, Takashi no Trosanjo is it's a lot, it's a weird game uh, I remember there being, I, I've never been able to source this, but there was a legend that when people complained that the game was too hard, eventually they released they released one guide, it wasn't good enough they released a second guide and people still were complaining how hard it was and eventually they, there was Allegedly, I, I would need to try to track down a source for this, but allegedly, someone eventually, a representative, just claimed that the person in charge responsible for the game was dead. <laughs> Stop complaining to us; he's gone. But yeah, uh, t- say, t- if, you,
1: if you made a game that that didn't want people to win, you'd have what it was whatever it was, Penn and Teller's collection.
2: Oh, Penn and Teller's "Smoke and Mirrors" that one. That one still has like the most beautiful thing
1: where uh,
2: for those not aware of what Gaijin is referencing, uh Penteller Smoke and Mirrors has a bunch of stuff. Uh, most of them are, uh, there's a bunch of mini games in it. One of them, is, a bunch of them are uh, essentially pranks that the player can play on other people.
1: Uh, they're things like
2: uh, you press-
1: A co-op game that was not actually co-op. <laughs>
2: Yeah, it was like there was like a competitive score-based shooter that you could press button combos in to like boost your score in ways that the opponent wouldn't really be able to detect, uh, and then button combos you could put in if they demanded your controller because they thought it was tied to the controller uh, to to swap them. So there's there's a whole bunch of like nonsensical bullshit you could do. Uh, there's there's desert bust, which is basically a prank
1: on the player for having played it.
2: Uh, and but, also
1: a prank on everyone who ever claimed that games should be more realistic.
2: 100%. Uh, and then the main mode was Smoke and Mirrors, which allowed you to play on Normal mode and Impossible mode. And if you tried to play on Impossible mode because you assumed it just meant Hard mode, you would uh, run into... Oh God, who was it? It was uh, oh, it was Lou Reed. You would run into Lou Reed like... Uh, Two screens into the game uh, and then he would uh, fire a laser at you and kill you instantly uh, with like in a cutscene there was no way to stop this and then would just tell you that uh, impossible doesn't mean very difficult because very difficult is winning the Nobel Prize and impossible is eating the sun and then the, the like only surviving portion of Pendulet, his, his head, would just sit there and say, you're too cool for us, Lou. And then it would just just game over you. No way to avoid this. <laughs> if a game doesn't want you to win, if it really doesn't want you to win, it has every way to stop you. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. And so, yes, there do exist a few games that do not wish you to win at all. That's one of them.
2: Yep. Rare as it can be. Uh, God, there's some, there's some really. I'm, I'm trying to remember some of the really ridiculous shit in uh, Takashi No Chosanjo, Sanjo yeah. because like that one was one where they did some stupid shit involving like if you actually played enough of it to understand it's a completely asinine plot. It was basically that you're a salary man that gets fired uh, and decide to essentially get divorced and go on a treasure hunt. Uh, it's extremely difficult. Uh, it's full of complete non sequiturs in terms of what you're intended to do. Uh, if you somehow get far enough into it that you're actually at the island treasure hunting stage, there's an infuriatingly difficult uh, hang gliding section for some reason. Huh? It's uh, it, it was. I believe that when you start the game, it basically just has like a eight bit digitized picture of uh, Takeshi Kitano's head that basically just says this game was designed by a man faith video games. And, uh, he, he certainly tried to give that impression. <laughs>
3: hmm.
2: I don't believe he has... The only other video game I'm aware that Takeshi Kitano was ever in was Yakuza 6. sure. I mean, I'm sure they paid him well, and it was very obvious why he would seek out Tessy Kitano to be in a Yakuza game. He just has the look. He has yeah. the look. He used to be in a lot of Yakuza pictures back in the day. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. Um, let see. Game's plot where a despondent salaryman seeks to find a hidden treasure on an island is introduced as having been created by katana while drunk at a bar.
1: Um, Sounds about right.
3: But yeah,
2: one of those one of those situations like uh, an infamous sort of game, uh, but very much definitely uh, unique. I'm glad that you're keeping track of the
0: chat. Well i ramble wheels uh, oh yes i'll say it on voice now uh, no hollywood is not judging you just seeing what weapons you're using that's all uh, let's see
3: uh
2: speaking of obscuring details when does it become too much in the pursuit of profit aka fs 15s plot holes needed for the dlc i think that uh i think that people in general overuse the term plot hole mm-hmm. Uh, a plot hole is when, uh, at least for me, is when there are two things that are happening, and it's irreconcilable or completely impossible to guess how the two... like They're either irreconcilable without some sort of further explanation that is not offered, like this character was dead in one scene and is back in another, you know, that kind of obvious thing, or... Uh, like that something, someone or something came in that is so outlandish to the setting that it needs a direct explanation. If something just wasn't explained, but there's ways to just mentally insert, like, okay, I can take some guesses as to why they're here, then I wouldn't call it a plot hole. It's just something they didn't talk about.
1: <laughs> I can think of two really good examples here. Mm-hmm. One that was a joke and one that was unfortunately serious. Mm-hmm. Um, the serious one is from um, the, the Don Bluth movie uh, Thumbelina, the animated mm-hmm. movie, mm-hmm. where in the very dramatic scene the fairy prince is fighting the toad, and they fall off what appears to be an underground cliff and fall into the void, and you never mm-hmm. see what happens to them afterwards. But Thumbelina flies with the sparrow, um, with the swallow to the Valley of the Fairies, and had mm-hmm. the song dan- the song number at the end, and the prince is there somehow.
2: Just, just chilling.
1: <laughs> no, I mean it's a it's a nice big dramatic reveal, but it's never explained how he survived this apparent fall to his death.
2: Yeah, um, and the the, the real yeah, there's issue. Is,
1: but there's no there's no, intimation that he survived the fall.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah. And the real, I, I would like just to hear that described. It sounds like the real issue is just that, like there's a lot of drama, and then there's nothing that connects the resolution of that drama there's no resolution
1: there yeah resolution's the big thing yeah the other one um you ever see national lampoon's loaded weapon one i have not is this ridiculous send-up of late 80s early 90s action movies especially Hmm. lethal weapon and everything like it that Um, makes sense (laughs) um oh can't remember his name but um the guy who he was a regular in saturday night live he had kind of an italian look he was like an inveterate sleazebag type of character um he always played the sleazebag type character
2: yeah let me check i'll just uh, see if i can find them uh thinking of john Lovitz.
1: <laughs> yes that was him so his character um he was playing basically joe pesci's character from lethal weapon mm-hmm. um and in the first scene he's in, he gets, he just gets um, filled full of bullet holes,
3: mm-hmm.
1: um and makes a bad deer hunter reference and falls to the ground dead. And then about 15, ten to fifteen minutes later, during a police interrogation scene, he shows up and hustles his way into the viewing booth. And um, it was actually um, one of the one of the detec- detective says, "Didn't you die?" And his response is, "I thought this was the sequel." <laughs> <laughs> And that's the only justification given. <laughs> Good
2: enough. <laughs> but yeah, it, it, it's about the failure of addressing the dramatic stakes of what you've done. Like, that's when it becomes a problem. And it's like not even necessarily per se a logic thing so much as just like, you know, the the actual, <laughs> the drama is what, ma- the, the drama and resolving it is what matters to the viewer.
3: Let's see.
2: Okay. Oh, um, other than Star Wars Dark Forces, what other video game was made from just a few lines from another works? If I remember correctly, most of the events in Lord of the Rings War in the North are made up. I mean, yeah. Like, anything that's, like, a derivative work that's very... Uh, like, your, your other option is to do uh, <laughs> Lord of the Rings the Third Age, which is... A much sadder state for us
0: yeah. all remember third age what a time i do yeah uh yeah war in the north um i guess it was loosely based on just a few lines but i think it's mostly just what can we fit what sort of adventure could we fit in that wasn't wouldn't mess with the rest of the series yeah like, like uh you know, the
1: reason you got lots of space to work with is just yeah. everyone cares a lot about the random things that are mentioned in one bit of the book um hmm. it's like um the TV series that's based on like literally half a page of outline in the Silmarillion, isn't it uh,
2: it's it's are you, are you talking about the recent amazon one cuz that one's yeah. wilder because like forget what exact uh license they have but basically they were allowed access to the appendices, but they didn't have the license for the <laughs> Oh so, That makes even more
3: okay.
2: fun. Yeah, it, it was some weird like licensing thing because like uh, Tolkien's the the people who have control of Tolkien's estate were very unhappy about one thing or another from various prior adaptations and were completely unwilling to allow the Silmarillion to be licensed in any fashion. And so you end up with like, well, you have access to everything in the book and that includes the appendices, but you can't touch anything that's actually in Silmarillion. So you have to make some changes specifically to make it clear that you're not trying to adapt things you don't have permission for. It's, uh, it's, it's a weird like rock and a hard place they got themselves in the amazon show can't use the set or anything that showed up in the movie so jesus yeah that too it's a it's a tangled knot of who owns what with lord of the rings which is again why you got the aforementioned third age which was an attempted japanese style rpg very much in the vein of ff10 But made by a company that had the rights to only use things that were shown on screen in the movies. (laughs) So you had a bestiary of here's a model of Urukai, but this one has a drum. But yeah. um... It's a. I'm trying to think of anything. Like, it's like usually. Uh, you know, if you're paying for an expensive license, you're going to base it. You're going to base something off of a very specific thing in the license. Star Wars tends to get a lot of these like refer things based off of very offhand references. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think of other things that are that that would even fall under this. Uh, there's definitely situations, one of my favorite like completely insane things. Uh, oh yeah, this, this is one of my favorite completely insane things. This kind of counts. Uh, the Scarface sequel game.
1: Scarface sequel.
2: Yes, because it uh, starts at the ending of Scarface right when Tony Montana is about to die. And then uh, sets the game in motion into an alternate universe where he does not die but has to rebuild his empire. That game is just the stupidest, most insane thing imaginable, and clearly written by someone who thought the idea was the stupidest, most insane thing imaginable, and was going to 100% commit to making it the stupidest, most insane thing imaginable. To the point where the one thing he was upset that they cut was that originally he had written a scene for the ending where it would be movie producers uh, trying to like license Tony Montana's story, and... Uh, saying that it didn't sound realistic, and him responding with like, you know, what's you know, sometimes sometimes the bad guy wins, and then shooting them.
1: <laughs>
2: Just the most deliriously insane game they could have
3: made. That sounds uh, wonderful.
2: Like it's it's exactly uh like the the more that I have seen it over the the, the more I've had time to think about it over the years, it's like. Yeah, no, that was that was exactly the correct thing to do. You can't make a straight face to the Scarface. You have to make a complete farce. Uh, but, yeah. Uh, that's that's one that, like, since it's technically, like, the only part of the original that it's really based off of is the fucking ending, and it changes that. I would say that kind of counts as being based off of, like, a couple lines from the original. <laughs> uh, brutally, brutally crazy game. Yeah. Uh...
3: Otherwise,
2: you can get some, uh, there's some Gundam games in Japan that get real into the weeds of being set in, like, extremely the background of some actual show that happened. Uh, and then eventually the TV shows started doing that too, which is why you get, uh, short, uh, short shows like, uh, Thunderbolt. Uh or, like, manga of like, uh, plot to assassinate Zabi, Which uh, was... How to describe that? Uh, it was basically Gundam's take on the Valkyrie plot. Uh. Since uh, Zabi is so much an analog for Hitler in Gundam, there is a section of the original show where his father is like, Have you ever heard of Hitler? Because you sure sound like Hitler. It's, uh. So someone was just like, Well, I can, I can make a manga about essentially someone attempting to pull the Vapory plot on Diron Zabi. Yeah. Uh, th- those, those kinds of things eventually, like big multimedia franchises, eventually you get some really weird uh, offshoot plots. Uh, It really has to be uh, a place that's got a lot of world to find and a lot of protection over the primacy of the original source material. Mm. Okay, Let's have a couple more before we pop off. How much fun is the aesthetic of Vice City compared to other Grand Vitottos? I mean, that, that neon, that pink neon is always uh, going to stick out. It's one of the reasons I usually hear when people talk about wanting another Grand set at Miami. Uh, I think the other thing is that it's much more inextricable from the game than stuff like... Uh, San Andreas has like a very strong aesthetic that was largely stripped out of it by later ports because the... Uh, original PS2 version of San Andreas is extremely orange and hazy game, like that's designed to be like this early '90s like smog covered LA that uh, it, it does very well. But almost every future version of it kind of stripped out a lot of the the orange tinting and haziness, uh, and it made the game look too clean. It lost a lot of its identity, and that made it less interesting as a, as an aesthetic. Uh, but Miami. Like, especially 80s Miami, no one's going to mistake the neon uh, or, you know, decide that it's not worth keeping all of this, like the garish colors and the neon and shit. And then uh, the follow-up question, uh, how nice looking is Miami in real life? Uh, My City wasn't being unfair to it. (laughs) It's, uh, It's got its charms. Uh, it kind of still looks like that. Um, the the eighties aesthetic is kind of just what Miami looked like. Um, yeah. Either of you two been to Miami, been to Miami? No. Yeah. What did you think, Agent?
1: <laughs> I mean, I was there for a high school convention, so it's not like uh, I spent much.
2: Gotcha. I was there for like three or four days for a friend's uh, bachelor party, and so I saw not the whole city, but I saw a fair bit of it. And it's like, yep, this is, this is very garish. Uh, it still, it still kind of looks like how Vice City portrayed it—a little grimy, a little, uh, a little a weird combination of grimy and bright. Uh, it's it's worth seeing, uh, especially because probably within the next ten or so years, it will become completely underwater. Um, mm-hmm. When I was there, like, seven or eight years ago, uh, God, actually, it would have been more like, way like, yeah, eight-ish years ago, I would say, when I was there. Uh, It was already not, it it, it was already, (laughs) there was a point where we stepped out of our hotel and there was like six inches of rain on a not super rainy day. It's just like, no, there's just a lot of water here and it's just getting worse. Um. But yeah. Uh. But yeah, it, it's. I wouldn't say it's pretty, but it's distinct, which is why. Uh, it had an aesthetic that could be essentially marketed with like Miami Vice and all that any shit. Uh,
1: CSI Miami.
2: Yep. It uh. It just sort of always looks like that. Um,
1: I was thinking, I remember talking with some people in a writing group once about how to visually set a, a city at the start of a story and referring to how the CSI series always began.
3: Hmm.
1: Because, I mean, every episode of, of any of those series always started with an establishing shot of the city.
2: Yeah. And the city, they each had the city their is own interesting enough. Yeah. City's interesting enough to set something in. It's probably got a unique enough skyline that people will be able to pick it out. And if you color grade it properly, then it'll, that'll just make it easier. <laughs> mm-hmm.
3: mm. Let's see.
2: And I guess we'll uh, quickly. Uh, run one more since it's related to that
3: question.
2: Will we ever see in our lifetime a game set in Arkansas or Nebraska? Not unless the point is the fact that there's no like city life to be had for miles around. Mm-hmm. But, uh, it's a setting that would be useful for making it feel like the player is on some level isolated. But that's that's kind of. Uh, what that setting ends up having to be for. So, I don't know. If we see, uh, yeah, I could maybe see a horror game set in Arkansas working. you got the, similar to Zarka. how RE7 ended. What's that? Zarka. <laughs> and, but yeah, I don't, I don't
1: even know what you would do with
2: Nebraska. I guess just a meditation. Children of the on... Corn,
1: dude. Children of the Corn.
2: Yeah, but I mean, yeah, outside of outside of horror, <laughs> uh,
1: not much. Um, yeah, like a
2: meditation on loneliness.
1: <laughs> uh, my family did a road trip to um, Mount Rushmore one year, and I remember driving the sole interstate through West Nebraska. Mm-hmm. There were exactly two interesting things on the entire way through that state. Uh huh. One of them was Carhenge. The other one was the sign on the side of the interstate that said, Warning, unmarked trucks may be carrying nuclear waste.
2: Oh, and that's interesting. It's nightmarish, but it's interesting. Oh. And, that
1: was, and there was literally nothing else between the nor- southern and northern borders of that state along the interstate there.
3: Yep.
2: You don't go to Nebraska unless something's very specifically bringing it to Nebraska. Otherwise, you just want yep. something that cuts through the state, and the interstate will do it.
1: <laughs> and mo- I mean, anything that can be even halfway described as interesting in Nebraska is all on the eastern side of the state, where the actual cities are.
3: Mm-hmm. Vacation
2: to scenic Omaha. Uh, mm, yeah.
1: Sure, why not? Okay. Okay. <laughs>
2: But yeah, uh, yeah. they you'd have to you'd have to really uh, be making something very specific to make out of those settings work. I think. Um, but yeah, that's that's probably that's probably enough questions for tonight. Uh, let's see. Tam says that he has in fact heard of Carhenge. Uh, yeah. Before we get uh, before we get wrapped up, I would like to know if I can purchase the latest episode of Princesses of the Pizza Parlor. Yeah?
1: Yes, the um, the third side story is available now on Kindle and Kindle Unlimited.
2: Excellent. And that's, of course, hardly the only thing that you can. Uh...
1: Oh yes. Ugh, excuse me.
0: Buy my we'll book. So Buy my That's, book.
1: Yeah. Jeez, please, please. Okay.
2: Multiple side stories, a paralogue, uh, a bunch of main stories as
3: well. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you're going by just ebooks, there's currently 14 ebooks books Dang. Which translates to currently four paperbacks, working on the fifth one, just needs a few more updates. Nice. Um, yeah. Um, but Yeah. That's what I get for deciding to make the paperbacks collections of the ebooks. <laughs> you know, just being ex- experimental and trying stuff with the publishing, you know.
2: Mm. Will, did you walk off that cliff on purpose? Mm. Moving on. Gotcha. Uh, but yes, uh, you can you can find those on Amazon, as Kindle eBooks or Dead Tree Books mm-hmm. under uh, As Princesses of the Pizza Parlor with the author, Michael Yadimizu. Yes.
1: I-A-R-I-M-I-Z-U.
2: It's much easier to Google than Michael Baker.
1: Uh, Google Anonymity is a pain in the butt. Er. It's
2: definitely got it's ups and downs.
1: I mean, I remember attempting to find an article I wrote on RPGamer years ago, um, like within six months of ro- having written it, and could not find myself on the internet.
2: Fantastic.
3: Damn.
1: Well, aside, I told you about the time my, my wife's host dad attempted to um, do a background check on me, right? Do a background check. On oh my me. God. Good luck. Uh, yes, um, he had to call us and ask me which Michael, which of the seventy Michael Bakers in Southside, Oklahoma City, I was actually supposed to be.
2: <laughs> I assume you picked the one that sounded the most impressive. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, I mean, I have no idea who any of the other sixty-nine were.
3: <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, should be, a, should be a. Southern Oklahoma, Michael Baker uh, meetup, so that you can all meet each other.
1: Uh, who knows? Uh, yeah,
2: but yeah, give give for instance the piece of parlor. I uh, read it's 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 not going to cost you much to give it a shot. Um, let's see,
0: um, else? Uh you can catch us on this channel twitch.tv every Wednesday at midnight to uh, see this podcast recorded live we also do a, another show on Sunday nights Sunday night shenanigans where we play multiplayer games last week we were playing Guilty Gear Strive which I hated and then did not hate what a time what a story uh, so we will probably be playing that again at some point uh, I, yeah. I will also be going to PAX East this weekend and so you can catch next next week's episode of Q&A Quest to hear about anything interesting I played there. Sometimes there's some things and sometimes there's nothing. We'll see what happens. Play it yes. so It's generally going to be a lot of indie stuff which can be a crapshoot. Yep.
3: Yeah. Uh
2: and then uh, i think for as for the podcast you can ask us questions like your friends shaman fireminer did this week uh much appreciated to both of them for uh feeding the beast that allows us to keep going uh you can ask us questions in the comments on rpgamer under this very episode uh or you can ask us questions in the podcast section of the discord if that's uh, your preference you can get to the discord by going to rpgamer.com and clicking the community tab and that'll give you an invite it's a lovely community whether you want to uh, ask us questions or not but if you put questions in the podcast section of the discord we might very well answer them because we will not be we cannot be stopped um but uh also, you can ask us questions if you manage to catch the stream, uh, Twitch.tv/AskWheels Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. Uh, 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern. You can ask us questions there, as uh, dear friend Fireminer did. But otherwise, I think that wraps us up. So see ya, Space Cowboys.
0: See ya. <laughs>